This is a correction. In the most recent episode of the Structured Rambling Podcast, entitled The Texts of 21, A Year in Review, I mistakenly referred to the film Soul as Sing. Sing was a different movie that was released by Illumination, animated, and involving music. Soul was released by Pixar and Disney, animated, involving music, and a single animal. They're both four-letter words. They both start with S. They're both musical. But I liked Soul better. I apologize for referring to Soul as Sing. This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Welcome to the Structured Rambling Podcast. My name is Paul Sons to be, and today I'm going to be talking about a single text. It's been a while since I've discussed a Canadian novel, and that's just happenstance. Uh, though in my slow slog through the history of literature and history and literature, uh, I, I'm actually still a thousand years before Canada even existed. But uh, I do get distracted with other texts, especially texts I have to teach. This is important because I always reread every book I teach. Yes, it's time-consuming, and yes, I've probably read Of Mice and Men or The Great Gatsby a dozen times each, but I couldn't imagine it doing another, any other way. I've recently reread and retaught The Wars by Timothy Finley, a Governor General Award winner from uh, 1977. This is one of the most potent of Canadian novels, one of the most significant to be released in the past half century. It's often taught in universities. Um, it's, it's complex. It's fairly postmodern in style, even though it's set in World War I. And it works along uh, a fairly simple theme, that war is completely unnatural. This story is really a story in a story. The style of the novel, like I said, being postmodern, um, has shifting points of view and narrative styles. We are reading the story of Canadian Robert Ross and the story of his war in 1916. Robert is a complicated man, gentle and thoughtful, a lover of animals, but by the end of the novel, uh, he commits just simply shocking acts, including murder. The framing story, the framing narrative, um, is some unnamed investigative writer or journalist researching Robert's story um, and the tragedy that ensued, uh, researching it decades later, presumptuously, presumingly, I I presume, in 1977, given that some of the main characters are still alive, though elderly. Um, Though we never learn who this person is or explicitly why they are researching this, um, through this person, uh, we get taped 
transcripts of conversations of some of those who knew Robert, as well as fascinating descriptions of photos that this writer studies. Guy Vanderheg talks about this novel's visual qualities um, in an introduction to the, the, the edition, the modern classics, Penguin edition that I have. Uh, he talks about the, the visual quality of, of Finley's style in this book. And you're not going to read many books that are so consistently visual as this one is that call to for you to see in your mind's eye directly saying that. So the unknown researcher pursuing Robert Ross's story um, is, is interviewing these elderly uh, first-person uh, narrators who, have, who encountered him and knew him. One of the reasons I love teaching the wars is because it's protagonist Robert transcends the typical hero but doesn't only fall to tragedy as is common in modern war novels or anti-war novels I mean he does fall to tragedy but in a most unexpected way I suppose it's better to say in a most unnatural way that's because this novel is chiefly concerned with how unnatural war is and juxtaposes it with Robert's encounters with the four elements as they are twisted ruined and changed by war as well Robert encounters animals on nearly every page of the book and his response to these and and their own their own reactions to the war are more important um, it's it's how they're victimized by it uh, it's one of the chief concerns so before I start my discussion let's take a moment to examine what I mean by wars unnatural nature Humans are very special beings. We've created vast social connections, huge planet-altering habitations, and our science, technology, and philosophy have pushed back the natural world and also discovered or even created universes completely invisible. We've had direct negative effects on our ecology and our climate. No creature on Earth has mastered our ability to destroy, waste, and contaminate the thing that sustains us. It's scary if you think about it. But war? War is one of our most impressive master strokes. In the jungle, Monkey A wants what belongs to Monkey B. Monkey A might club Monkey B and then take his stuff. That's the lowest, most basic level of problem solving. Now, humans, with our huge brains and our rational thought, our complex methods of communication, our gargantuan rule systems, and baffling methods of deliber deliberating on wrongness, we still feel a point where all this fails, and we must pick up that stick and hit monkey bee over the head. Except we've industrialized the stick, and we can slaughter monkey bees by the thousands. It's a strange thing. I'm a pretty regular boy in some ways. I had G.I. Joes as a kid. I played guns. I read the history of conflict. I watch war movies. I read fiction set in wars, like this novel. But I despise the act of war in reality. It's, it's such a useless and primal reaction. It's never a solution. Even when a Hitler or a Stalin makes no other deterrent viable, it, it does no good. 
I recently taught the wars again to an extremely insightful group of young people. I'm not going to insult them by trying to summarize the, the, the discussion we had over several days in class. What I'm going to do is take the four key elements, earth, wind, water, and fire, and show how Finley makes these most basic of natural things unnatural through war. One thing this won't fully address is the presence of animals. As I said, they're on nearly every page, and someone could make a much longer discussion of of their meaning and their importance in the wars. For my purposes here, the only mention of animals will be in their relationship to the element in question. So we're going to start with water. With water, we must start with Rowena. Robert enlists as an officer in the artillery corps because of tragedy, the death of his sister Rowena, his mother's emotionless response to it, maybe you might even say sadistic response to it, and the compounded tragedy of Mrs. Ross demanding that Rowena's pet rabbits be killed as well, and at first her insistence that Robert be the one to do the deed. Rowena suffers from hydrocephalus, which is commonly, or was maybe, commonly known as water on the brain. She appears rarely in family photos because her mother is a proud and socially aware woman, and Rowena in her wheelchair with her 10-year-old mind and her finite life is the family shame. Only Robert loves and cares for her. He builds the cages for her rabbits in the barn. Rowena falls in the barn and Robert isn't there because, as most students who read this novel never fail to quote at some point, quote, he was in his bedroom making love to his pillows. Though she lives to 25, far longer than her life expectancy, Rowena's death haunts Robert and she is the reason he goes to war to escape. The last time he sees his mother, she comes to him while he's in the bath. Now, I suppose there's a means of reading this as a baptism of sorts, but I'm, I'm more inclined to see it as the establishment of the unnatural nature of nature in this book. Water is life, and yet it costs Rowena a good one. When Robert refuses to kill the rabbits as his mother orders, she hires the massive Teddy Budge to do it, and Robert attacks him. He's beaten up, and then Mrs. Ross comes to see him in the bath where he's recovering, quote, soothing his aches and bruises with water that was almost scalding hot. Now, it's natural for a boy to be seen by his mother while bathing, to even be bathed by his mother, but not as a man. A mother is a nurturer, but Mrs. Ross resists the natural behavior and makes him feel even worse. Quote, he hated the way she used his childhood, everyone's childhood, as a weapon. She is curt, uncaring, unforgiving, not a natural mother. They never see each other again, for Robert leaves to war, to violence, and he never returns to Canada. He takes two baths in this novel. Both times, someone ruins his euphoria and his relaxation. Both times, violence is connected to this bath. Robert's a bit of a dreamer. He's a different kind of soul. 
And while training in Lethbridge, he spends his free time in long, lonely runs across the prairie, encountering wildlife such as a lone coyote. On the ship to England, he befriends a man named Harris, a Nova Scotian, who tells Robert about his lone adventures in the sea, which are similar to Robert's adventures on the prairie. Quote, Where I swam, there was a shelf. I used to walk to the edge of the shelf and sit with my legs dangling down. I've no idea how deep it was. Sitting on the shelf at low tide, my head was just above the water. Then I'd slide, like a seal, out of the air and into the water, out of my world into theirs, and I'd stay there hours, or so it seemed. I'd think, I never have to breathe again. I've changed. It changes you. But the thing, is, thing was, I could do it change and be one of them they aren't any friendlier the fish you know but they accept you there as if you might belong if you wanted to it's not like here it's not like here at all robert himself is afraid of water and yet the kinship he feels with harris's idiosyncratic need to be alone robert finds at once thrilling threatening and connecting he he feels um he sees a similarity to Harris's interpretation of the fish, tolerant, not loving, as he, the coyote shows him. In Belgium, Finley describes at length the infamous and dangerous mud of the World War I battlefields. The rains of the lowlands are natural, but unnatural war has removed all greenery, and all you have is this slop. The mud is dangerous, which is not natural fumbling around in dark confusion robert hears wings and thinks the birds are aquatic ducks only to learn later that they're crows symbols of death the lowlands are of course countries of land claimed from the sea a victory against nature but robert and his men are confused and stumble about and are nearly drowned um around a damaged dike that they that they are using sort of as a to find their way robert starts to sink in some water and mud he panics quote he reached above his head and shoved his hands down hard through the mud until he could curl his fingers deep in the earth. He pulled himself forward with his legs like twisted ropes, and then he gave a violent, sudden spasm and flopped face down in the slush. He was free in a foot of water. He could hear himself breathing, whimpering. He closed his eyes. I don't want to drown, he thought. Please don't drown. He pushed himself up with his head hanging down. His breathing died away. He knelt with both hands fisted on his knees. He listened. He has gone to commit the unnatural act of war, and the natural world, water mixed with clay and soil, is the is most lethal thing to him at this point. And then when he gets his horse to swim, there's an aerial illusion instead of an aquatic one. On the far side, he could see the men and the wagons and the rest of the convoy were drawn up near fires, and he just kept thinking, warm, I'm going to be warm. The hardest part was not to swim himself, but to let the horse do the swimming. It was an odd sensation, being drawn through water, almost submerged with his clothes flowing back and his knees pressed hard against the horse and the stirrups banging against his ankles. Pegasus, 
When he got to the other bank, Robert fell off the horse, and the horse went suddenly up the incline without him. He was glad he'd had the sense to take his feet from the stirrups. Otherwise, he'd have been dragged. Several pairs of hands reached down and threw him to the top. The next thing he knew, he was naked and wrapped in a blanket and seated by a fire. Break out the rum, he said. Water is life. Water is the beginning of life. And Robert's war begins with water as the first real threat he experiences. And Earth is no better. Obviously, Earth becomes something other than its natural form in trench warfare. Artillery has blown all vegetation in a way and has created the pockmarked no-man's land. Shells meant to kill then create holes for men to take cover in for safety, ironically. The rain turns dirt and clay to sucking mud, even drowning mud. The gas that each side unleashes on the other seeps into the soil, giving it a lethal smell. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, um, Paul praises Earth for its ability to protect a man. Even the smallest mound can deflect or stop the lethal bullet. In the trenches, men depend on the earth for its safety. But let's consider in Finley's novel, two times when the earth becomes dangerous. After the scene with the swimming horse at the dike, we are given a few scenes of Robert and some officers setting up camp in a dugout. The dugout is nicknamed the stained glass dugout because one of the men, Devlin, has rescued a single panel of stained glass from a house or a church, possibly, in St. Elroy. This establishes the peculiarity of this hole in the earth and the men who reside in it. Protecting a piece of stained glass amidst bombing and shelling is ludicrous, but these men are protectors of delicate things, things impractical to have in war. Of course, one of the images on the stained glass is a delicate thing, a butterfly. A man named Rodwell rescues animals, specifically a toad, a hedgehog, some birds, and rabbits, which of course make Robert think of Rowena. And notice how none of these are predatory animals, just the delicate victim type, beautiful but impractical, like butterflies on stained glass windows in dugouts. Levitt, another denizen of the dugout, carries Books, including one on theories of war by a man named Clausewitz. Books are delicate and impractical in this setting, but consider the irony of reading war theory on a battlefield in a war. It's sort of like reading about aviation in a jet over the Atlantic. At the beginning of section three of the book, at 4 a.m. on February 28th, 1916, the dugout is hit by a detonation and, quote, when the mines went up, the earth swayed. Then the earth fell in clods. The dugout caves in. The earth is killing these men, burying them before their time. In the confusion, there's a scene of brief comedy as men and animals recover from the blast and dig themselves free. Once free of the dugout, they discover that Poole, Robert's Batman, is missing. And they can only assume that he's buried under earth, rock, and clay. They begin digging frantically, desperately. Quote, Robert was just about to give up when the man, between himself and Rodwell, spoke. 
Who are we digging for? He asked. Robert fell backwards. It was Poole. So begins a day almost frozen in time, described by Finley in almost minute-by-minute updates. Robert is ordered, maddeningly, to set up his mortars again, so he leads an under-equipped group of men to set up a position. Here, all of the elements turn on the men, and only the unnatural saves them. The men experience a gas attack. The wind moves the gas toward them, and yes, now the element of air is trying to kill them by the process of breathing. Robert is the only one who has a gas mask, so he leads them to a shell hole in attempt to get below the gas. It's sheer and it's slippery and the bottom is treacherously unsafe, full of water and mud. For, quote, for a moment, they ceased to be soldiers and became eight panic-stricken men who were trapped in the bottom of a sinkhole, either about to drown or smothered to death with gas. Air and water are two most basic needs for survival are the threat here. In fact, they will soon learn that as they struggle, they are being watched by a German sniper who intends to let them go. An enemy soldier who should be killing them doesn't, and air and water, which should be giving them life, threaten to kill them. Robert's solution for his men is to have them urinate in their handkerchiefs and then breathe through them. A poison the body naturally rejects becomes their savior. Quote, The ammonia in their urine would turn the chlorine into harmless crystals that could not be breathed. Through his education, Robert has learned how to beat the unnatural with the naturally occurring chemical process. Just in case you think the world has briefly righted itself, though, note that Robert places their lone gas mask on a man who dies. The thing which is for saving them doesn't. The thing that should be rejected from the body does. Now, obviously, fire is naturally dangerous, and the novel builds to fire, though it appears earlier as well. Fire is the most naturally threatening of the four. But, of course, it does have its benefits. It's Prometheus's gift to humans, what he steals from the gods and is punished for. It cooks for us. It warms us. It protects us from the darkness, keeping danger at bay and, and lighting it up. Without fire, I could not be sitting perfectly comfortable inside recording this podcast in the middle of what would be a lethal Canadian winter. Fire, of course, is the most valuable element in war. It's the power of the human race that we can use gas, water, even earth as weapons if pushed to it. But fire, we just have to unleash. This was the war where we invented the flamethrower. Why send your foes to hell when you can bring hell to them? Finley describes this almost supernatural weapon on page 132 of my edition. The weapon with which the Germans now attacked had been introduced at Verdun. It was something called a flamethrower, and rumors had come down the line describing it, but no one had believed. Men, it was said, carrying tanks of fire on their backs, came in advance of the troops and spread the fire with hoses. Water burned and snow went up in smoke, 
nothing remained. It was virtual attrition. The ultimate weapon had been invented. Only powder and dust remained of trenches filled with men. These were the rumors. Some of the commanders laughed. Fire could not come out of hoses. Don't be ridiculous. If fire came out of hoses, the men who wielded them would be the first to burn. Dynamite and tanks and gas and aeroplanes had all been dismissed with the same rebuttal. A. Men would not do such things. And B. They could not. Then they did. The flamethrowers made their first appearance at St. Elroy on the evening of the 29th, a Tuesday. 1916 was a leap year. Fourteen carriers had appeared in no man's land at about the time of sundown, wearing metal breastplates with large red crosses painted on the front. These were not the crosses of mercy. They were the emblem of the units specially trained in liquid warfare and shown off only a month before to an enthusiastic Kaiser. The German high command had invested so much faith in this new weapon that they dubbed the Verdun Offensive where it would first be used as Operation Gericht, the place of judgment. Firestorms raged along the front. Men were exploded where they stood, blown apart by the combustion. Winds with the velocity of cyclones tore the guns from their emplacements and flung them about like toys. Horses fell with their bones on fire. Men went blind in the heat. Blood ran out of noses, ears, and mouths. Wells and springs of water were plugged and stopped by the bodies of men and mules and dogs who had gone there for safety. The storm might last for hours until the clay was baked and the earth was seared and sealed with fire. We're told a few pages later about the wars on the home front. This usually involves some story of Robert's mother, who, despite her unnatural behavior as a parent, is moved and shaken by the wars that she is experiencing at home. Four pages after the passage on the flamethrower, we are told... Quote, early in February, when the Parliament buildings in Ottawa were razed to the ground, Mrs. Ross read all the accounts of the disaster in the papers, cut them out and put them in her bureau drawer. She studied them like textbooks, making notes in the margins. She believed her country was being destroyed by fire and said so to Davenport. She was also impressed by the fact that when the bells in the center tower fell, they were in the process of striking 12 o'clock but had only told 11 times when they crashed to the, to, gra- to the ground. She wrote in the margin alongside this information, no more midnight. It was like a prayer. Things are caught forever in the 11th hour by flame. Rodwell is one of Robert's fellow sensitives from the former stained glass dugout. He was the one who collected and saved those poor little animals. Though only the toad lives. Rodwell is transferred and bequeaths the toad and his sketchbook into Robert's care. Word reached Robert Saturday that Rodwell had shot himself. Apparently he'd gone down the line and been assigned to a company who'd been in the trenches all through the firestorms without being relieved. Some of them were madmen. This was understandable, perhaps. When Rodwell arrived, he found them slaughtering rats and mice, burning them alive in their cooking fires. Rodwell, being Rodwell, had tried to stop them. They would not be stopped. 
And seeing that he took an interest, they'd forced him to watch the killing of a cat. Half an hour later, Rodwell wandered into no man's land and put a bullet through his ears. And this, of course, foreshadows Robert's own fate in fire. The final sections of the novel, with Robert's slow return to the field and his experience of compounded horrors, has been rightfully compared to a descent into hell. War brings out the worst in us, and this section shows Robert encountering the worst over and over until he finally snaps. A slow progression from England to the front is, is almost pleasant, with Robert enjoying nature sounds, a walk, and, and trading waves with the locals. He's even able to take a bath, but mirroring his bath earlier on with his mother, which came after an act of violence, what follows is horror piled upon horror, rape, death, fire. Nature is upside down now until the novel's end. The bath is like a baptism into awfulness, into sin. It's an unbaptism. After he is raped by his fellow soldiers, Robert burns his photos of Rowena. Quote, this was not an act of anger, but an act of charity. Rowena's innocence is too pure for a world like this, and he must burn her out of it. On his way to Bloody Ypres, his column is bombed. From here to the front, he sees butchery. Quote, in places the ditches were literally piled with corpses and carcasses to the height above the level of the road. And then Robert snaps. It was going to happen, and it happens for the most wrong reason, the most unnatural reason. And we return now, finally, to animals and war. This is Robert's personal hell, one in which innocents succumb to the barbarism of war. Robert seeks to save 60 mules and horses when Captain Leather, whose incompetence he has encountered earlier, attempts to stop him. Robert kills Leather, an act of treason, but outside of war, a killing of the guilty in order to save the innocent. Then he runs the animals through the town of Belio as it's in flames from a barrage. He shoots the private who again attempts to stop him from saving the animals. Robert holds the animals up in a barn, and a major mickle accosts him, saying he needs to give up. Robert says fatally, quote, We shall not be taken. And then the narrator tells us, It was the we that doomed him. To mickle, it signified that Robert had an accomplice, maybe more than one. Mickle thought he knew how to get them out. He sent four men around behind the barn by a route Robert cannot have seen, behind the wall, and told them to set fire to the roof. That is what they did. So Mickle, who is theoretically Robert's ally in war, sets a barn on fire. The animals burn, Robert burns, and he is, as he is taken to the ground, his flesh seared from flames, he asks about the dog that had accompanied him and the horses. Robert Ross is a man out of step with the world at war. And like many of the compassionate, tender, and real characters in the wars, he cannot come to terms with how this military cataclysm takes all that we know as right, true, and just, and inverts it, corrupts it, 
or consumes it. War is not natural. An industrial war on a global scale costing the lives of thousands of men because of the decisions of dozens is incomprehensible, but oh so human. In the end, Robert Ross clings to the very little he can make sense of in his upside-down experience in his hell on earth. He lived six more years in the agony of his injuries, tended by young Juliet Dorsey. When he dies at last, she has inscribed on his tombstone, earth and air and water and fire. Robert faces all of these elements as threats and survives. But like anyone who comes through a conflict, it's unnatural. It's unnatural resolution has ravaged him for the short life he has left. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.